Uh, good morning, Sunridge and online guests. Thanks for dropping in and joining us. As Becky said, we still believe that, uh, you know, in the middle of the guidelines that we have right now, the best way that we can deliver content to the church, especially teaching, is to continue to do it online. And so you've joined us. But we're also gathering together, as Becky mentioned, with worship the first Sunday of every month. And then, of course, tonight we have the collective where we're talking about the subject that I'm going to be addressing Today, I do want to just like tag on to one thing that Becky was talking about in the way that we're rallying around our families uh, during this time where, you know, kids are sitting and looking at a computer screen for three, five hours a day. And it's like all their lives we're telling them, don't look at the computer so much. And here we've just sat them down and are making them do that. So, and you know, that just has so many effects. So, Basically what I want to say to those of us that don't have kids at home any longer, like people like me, I mean you're a little older, um, especially men. Men, I'm talking to you right now. It's like we need to step up. This is an opportunity for us to serve the families of our church and also uh, to serve our community. And we consider ourselves part of this community here. We're a church for this community and we love serving here. So, uh, you know, they're gonna put up the rally registration uh, sheet in your chat, and I encourage you to sign up for that. So, on to the teaching. We're in the middle of this series we've called Half the Church. I stole the title uh, from a book. I got permission from the author, Carolyn Custis James, and we'd love uh, for you to read that book. It's on our resource list. Um, so, Today we're gonna continue in that series and I wanna let you know, uh, I, I've done this once before in this series. I'm gonna talk a little longer today, imagine that. And uh, there's a lot of notes with this. So we're gonna put the note sheet in the chat. If you wanna like download that and follow along, that'll really help you uh, stay focused on some of the main points that we're talking about. This series, Half the Church, has a dual purpose. Number one, we wanted to discover or uh, for some of us, reimagine what is God's design and how men and women are to come together in the kingdom of God and serve him together in our homes, in our churches, in our community. What, what's the nature of our relationship and our roles? So that's, that's been the primary thing that we're talking about. But it's also um, uh, it's describing a process and a decision that our board made uh, because there was a lack of clarity here at Sunridge, just being honest, in women's roles. And so, uh, you know, it was, you know, we all kind of had our own idea. I've mentioned this before, but when I accepted the position of lead pastor here at Sunridge, the only uh, limitation on women's roles at Sunridge was elder. It says that uh, the board was comprised of male elders. And yet, that was not the consensus in the church. We learned that often is if a woman would speak or sometimes a woman would be in a certain role, uh, we would get email on it and we'd get you know, some grumblings, you know, and it's not a negative comment, it's just people had their own understanding of that. And indeed, even on the board, there was you know, great discussion and debate about what are the limitations. And we just learned that we're all over the page on that and so we addressed it. And so after three years of looking at this topic, uh, the board determined that every believer, every Christ follower should be free to express their God-given gifts without limitation. And certainly uh, that applies to gender. Uh, that was an intensive time for us and uh, we didn't take it lightly. There was a lot of prayer, and you know, I encourage you to listen to all of our messages on that because it really describes both kind of our pathway and the scriptures underlying the things that we learned, but also kind of the process that we went through. And uh, so like the first message, we talked about how application is often as important as interpretation of the Bible. Uh, and we cited a lot of examples, but one of them was slavery. Uh, there's no question about what uh, the New Testament letters say about slavery. Uh, Paul is clear on this, so is Peter. Uh, the slave should obey his master. Yet, none of us would give that, uh, cite that as, uh, you know, something that we should do today. We've modified that in many ways, 
And that's a good thing. There are bigger principles that caused us to do that as we grew in our understanding of scripture and in culture. But we talked about that. Um, and then in our second message, we talked about God's original design and how, you know, in many ways our tradition or patriarchy has affected the way that we've looked at scripture. And so when we, when we kind of ferreted out the use of the word uh, helper uh, in Genesis, we found that nowhere is that word used in a way in which we were understanding it in some of the most patriarchal ways, um, that a woman is somehow inferior to a man or is always his helpmeet underneath him, subordinate to him. That word is used of God 18 times in the Old Testament. It's used in a military way, and it's like a warrior kind of a word. So uh, we discovered that God is intended for men and women to be in partnership as equals in serving God and in the calling and vocation that God has given them. And then last week, Jed did such a great job of talking about power, which is kind of related to all of this, right? That there's our, uh, our world is affected by sin. And one of the consequences of sin is that God's intentional design is corrupted and changed. And so, like, in the church, things are supposed to be different, right? because we're under a different king. We, we live in a different kingdom. And so in the church, the discussion isn't about power, it's about servanthood. And we see this over and over, not just in the life of Jesus or in the teachings of Jesus. He said that if you wanna be great, you'll be, you'll be the servant of all. And Paul often talked about like that we're su to submit to one another. And if you even think about the nature of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're not in a hierarchical uh, structure. That is, God isn't the main God and then Jesus the second God and the Holy Spirit the last God. They're in a mutually submissive relationship with one another. And so, so are men and women, so are we as Christians, that in the church, we are submitting to one another the best that we can under scriptural principles and organizational structures. We do that because that's what God has called us to, to do. We're not about power, we're about servanthood. But then today, uh, I know that some of you have just been waiting for this topic, so here we are. You know, I, I know that often uh, when we talk about women's roles, we go to the Pauline passages, and so the title of my message today is, What About What Paul Said? I mean, that's a great title to me. I don't know how you feel about that, but we're going to look at two passages in particular. They are the critical obstacles for some people, so I want to address those directly but humbly. Uh, but before we jump into those passages, we have to talk about how to interpret the Bible. So we're going to talk about how do we read and understand the Bible. So if this, this might be a new word for you, but I'm going to share it with you today. The word is hermeneutics. Now that's not a band from the 80s. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting the Bible. That's uh, one of my first Bible college classes was on hermeneutics. It's like, how do you, how do you interpret the scripture? And so there are, to do so, and that's, this is the science and art of hermeneutics, it takes, it takes a process. It requires principles, and it requires a degree of finesse even. That's why we say it's also an art. And then of course it takes a lot of humility. Hermeneutics is based on kind of a basic premise. And, and how I would describe this, people say it differently, but it, it's based on the premise that the, of the plain reading of scripture, the plain reading of scripture. And by that, I mean this. What did the writer plainly mean to communicate, or the speaker? What did they mean to communicate? And then secondly, and uh, connected to it, is how would the hearers have understood it? See, that's a key in interpreting the Bible because the Bible, in some cases, is a thousands-of-year-old document based on where you are in the Old Testament or the New. So how do we understand it? We have a lot of things to, to like, figure out because um, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. Do you get that? It's like when, when people are speaking in the Bible, whether it's Apostle Paul or whether there's a narrative 
uh, from the Old Testament or we see the life of Jesus, they were writing these things to a group of people at that time. And so we can't just like apply our 21st century world to that in understanding it. We eventually get there. But in order to understand the Bible, what, what did they really mean? We have to consider who is it written to and how would they have understood it? Now, there's some pieces to that. There's some pieces to doing that. So interpreting the Bible or basic hermeneutics include, number one, comparison with Scripture, right? I mean, we have to ask, you know, what does, if, if, if Paul says this here, what does he say in other areas? Or what do other passages of the Bible say? Because Scripture has to interpret Scripture. And so we're in, we're in um, dangerous territory when we just cherry pick a verse without considering the whole testimony of Scripture. So we want to compare passages to passages. Another thing we need to consider is genre. Genre is like what, what is the literary form that we're reading. You know, in the, in the case of the passages we'll look at today, these are letters that Paul wrote uh, to different churches. So in a sense, we're reading someone else's mail, right? And so we're only getting half the story and we have to fill in the blanks based on, you know, what Paul is saying to them and kind of trying to figure out what he might be addressing, what might have been said before. Um, the Psalms, when we read those, they're their poetry or music that has been composed. And so often they're written figuratively. And we have to ask that, is this figurative or literal? Uh, when, when the psalmist says, you know, God, you cover me with your feathers, uh, does that mean God has literal wings and feathers? Or when uh, the psalmist says, you're my rock, does that, that doesn't mean that God is like a giant boulder. He's using phys uh, figurative language. And so we have to consider that genre when we're interpreting the Bible. Also, we need to consider context. Context is super important. What, what was the situation at that time in this place? Why was it written to that time in this place? And who wrote it? Because without context, without really understanding the full context of what's happening, we could miss a lot or we could entirely miss the whole point. Part of context is culture. That's another thing we need to consider, understanding the norms of the day and the values of that time. That, that makes things come alive and in color. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, it's not just a story of, a, of Jesus talking to a woman, she's a Samaritan. And a Jewish rabbi or a man would never even talk to this woman. And yet Jesus is interacting there and it colors in and helps you to understand more deeply or like even how revolutionary this thing that is happening or even Jesus' words on divorce. You have to know the culture of the time to understand what Jesus is saying because a woman could just be divorced, you know, simply by a man saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you and because she burnt the toast or whatever. And so what these kind of things, the culture of the day, really bring to light uh, what is really happening and why something might be addressed. And certainly that's going to be true in the letters because Paul is addressing a culture that, and a place in a time that's different, completely different from ours. And some of that will come out today. We need to consider history. What was happening in the world? And what's the, like the 10,000 foot level of the historical narrative of what might be affecting this? Is there a big picture? When we look at things like uh, Proverbs where it tells us, you know, how to discipline children, we know that there's a, there's a historical perspective that changes the way that we apply that. So we're not, we're no longer... Uh, you know, spanking a child until they're blue, or, you know, in the first message we talked about even some of the commentaries from the six, 1600s, how they interpreted this. History has a big effect. We, we don't believe in slavery anymore. Uh, and it was certainly the history that affected uh, Christians going back to the scripture 
and addressing this and looking afresh and new. We, we have, just in our lifetime, we have an entirely different perspective on drinking wine, most of us today. You know, if you're like me, I grew up in a very fundamentalist church and we were called teetotalers. You, you didn't do that. You didn't play cards. You didn't go to movies. And historically, those have become kind of like not something that are issues anymore. We don't greet one another with a holy kiss, especially with COVID. Uh, we couldn't even do it well with masks, but you know, that's, that's a uh, historical thing. That was something that was part of their culture at that time, so it's more like shaking hands or giving a hug, but Paul explicitly says that we should greet one another with a kiss, but there's a historical perspective that affects how we interpret that. Language is part of how we must interpret scripture. You know, the New Testament was written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew for the most part. And so those words don't always translate to English of our day. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with some of the words associated with love. There's agape love, which, is, which describes God's love. But then there's phileo, which is a friendship kind of love. Uh, there's eros, which is a sensual love. So sometimes the words really have an impact on how we understand what's being, saying, being said. And our message too on the Azer Connecto, that was certainly like driven by how is that word used? So like that, that colors and affects how we interpret it in other places. And then last, um, but not least, and there are probably many others, but I just wanted to throw down the basics, is sentence structure. I remember my first hermeneutics class in Bible college where this, was, this is what the professor started with. And back then we studied in the King James uh, Bible, the good old KJV, if it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for us, we used to say. And uh, that was a joke. I don't know if you're laughing out there online, but um, I, I hate to waste my good jokes on a virtually empty room. But um, anyway, I hope you're chuckling at home. So the professor starts off, but he says, oh, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus passed around the cup, and as he gave it to the first disciple, he said, this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant. Uh, drink ye all of it. So what did he mean? Did he mean take this cup and drink all of it? Or did he mean all of you should take a drink from it? You get that? So that's sentence structure, and we figured that out in class, even though it was in the King James English, we were still able to figure it out. So what am I saying? There are principles to interpreting scripture, and that's what we're gonna apply today. That, that science is called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics keeps us honest. You see, uh, one theologian I read said that hermeneutics is based on the premise that the other position may be right. So it's so often we come to scripture with our tradition. We should read the Bible with tradition, but not through tradition. That is, we can't take our perspective and our traditions and our preferences and place it on the Bible. We have to let the Bible speak for itself and hermeneutics imposes that on us. So, Let's put these principles to work. Are you guys ready to do that? If you are, just say ready, or uh, put that in the chat, say ready. And we're gonna look at two passages that are often used uh, to prohibit women from leading or speaking in church, and we're just gonna apply these principles. I told you this is gonna be a longer message. This is, this is one of the great things about um, uh, doing it online. If you want to take a break, you could just stop it right now and go get another cup of coffee, take a, take a walk, do some push-ups, whatever. But we're going to jump into this first passage. It's in Paul's first letter in 1 Corinthians 14. And here's what it says. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now some of you right now are going, what, right? I didn't know that was in the Bible. And others of you are going, yeah, yeah, that's what we gotta talk about. So what did Paul mean here? 
And why did he say this? And before I jump into this, I just have to tell you, like, there are many explanations for this. If you just Google it or you want to pull out your favorite commentary, somebody's going to have a position on this. So whatever I share in the next few moments, is, it's like I'm saying it firmly because it's something that the board spent so much time on dialoguing and discussing. Uh, but we hold that humbly, and we realize that there are many other positions on this. But let's start by being intellectually honest with one another, okay? When you look at this passage, would you, could we put it back up again? When you look at this, is there anyone that would advocate that we do exactly what Paul says here? That we take his words literally off the page and we apply them to the church in Temecula on Winchester Road today? Because if we do, Paul says that women should remain silent, that they cannot talk, that, that they are not allowed to speak in church. And a little later, down in the text, it says that if they have a question, not only should they, they should be so silent that even if they have a question, they should go home and ask their husbands. Is there, are there any of us that think that that's what, exactly what we should do today? The reason why I'm, like I point that out is this is something that weighed on me is I went through this process on my own. Because I think it's really easy at this point and, and it has happened at our church and it's happened in other churches and other situations when we start talking about this. People try to find this high ground with one another. And, they, and, and you know, it, it includes labels of liberal and fundamentalist and it includes, uh, you know, you don't believe in the Bible, I believe in the Bible more than you and there's like this, this name calling back and forth and if, you know, for those especially say like, I stand on the Bible, this, what it says is what it says, and I, but can we just be honest and say that none of us are gonna advocate that we do exactly that, what Paul explicitly says. Aren't we all modifying it in some way or another? So the labels of, you know, you don't believe in inerrancy or you don't believe the scripture is true, it's like, those aren't helpful, and in the end, they're not true. Because what would it mean if we actually applied that just exactly the way Paul said it? Let that sink in. Let that rest on you right now. In fact, put in the chat, hmm. When I say let it rest on you, it's like often we hear something that's different or something that's new, and we there's something in our brain that just kind of like dis dispenses of it, shoves it away. But we can't do that. Not if we're going to be humble and truly seek God's truth here. Let it rest on you that we're not going to follow that exactly and explicitly as it's said. So what did Paul mean? Let's use some of the hermeneutical principles that I shared with you. First of all, let's compare it with scripture. When you compare this passage with other scripture, Paul cannot have been prohibiting women from teaching. He cannot have been doing that. Because in the same letter, in chapter 11, Paul is addressing how women are to dress and whether they should wear a hat or not. Remember this? We talked about this in our first message. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. So when we read that, we not only see like a cultural thing where women were wearing hats and they had to have long hair, but it's in the context of Paul is saying when women pray or prophesy in church, so it's clear that women are speaking in church and they are prophesying. And if you're familiar with your New Testament in the early church, God gifts people, men and women. 
And he gives those gifts. The Holy Spirit gives those gifts for the purpose of building up the church. So why is God gifting people to do something that they cannot do in the church? In chapter 11, Paul is acknowledging that women are doing this, and he's just saying, when they do it, here's some parameters. Here's how they need to dress when they do it, which is something entirely different. And some people would say, well, that's not teaching, that's prophesying. So what is prophesy? What does it mean to prophesy? To prophesy at that time, remember they didn't, they didn't all have the, the bound Bible like we have, and the Holy Spirit would nudge people, it's a gift from God, and they would speak the words of the Lord. It was as if God were speaking scripture through them. Can you think of a more authoritative thing for someone to do than to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord? This is huge. And it's women that are doing it. Even in chapter 14, the one that we're in, men and women are praying, they're prophesying, they're speaking in tongues, and they're using their gifts. Right there in the same chapter. Let that sink in. Again, let that weigh on you, that women are prophesying. And Paul is writing about it in the same letter. We have to look at genre. This is part of what helps us understand Scripture. This is a letter that we're reading. 1 Corinthians is a letter. And so we only have half of a conversation. And that makes discovering the context, the culture, and the history critical to understanding what Paul may have meant. When we read letters, we're listening to one side of a conversation. It's like if you're in a public place and someone's on their cell phone and they're talking, which is quite annoying, right? Can we all get an amen on that? Put an amen in the chat. Please stop talking so loudly on your phone in a public place. We don't want to hear your conversation. But you're trying to piece that together, right? And so, like, there's all these cultural barriers to understanding and history and everything. This morning, as our team was um, rehearsing, someone, uh, I called someone a sweat hog. It was a guy, so don't, don't get too offended. And that person happened to be closer to my generation than others. And then they came back with a line from Welcome Back, Cotter. And I asked some of the younger people here, like, do you even know what we're talking about? No, I do not. Sometimes interpreting the Bible's like that. There's something you have to know about that conversation in order to fully comprehend what's being said. So we piece it together. And the way we piece it together, we, we really end up relying on context. The context of this passage reveals that Paul was addressing disruptions in the services. And I want you to see this. When they had church, all the people were encouraged to participate. It wasn't like now where you just listen to one person prattle on and on. Like they would pop up, someone would pray, and then someone would have a prophecy, and then someone would speak in a tongue, and someone would interpret it, and somebody would read a, a something either from the Torah or a letter of Paul, and, and then they would talk about it. So it was much more participative at that time. And here you see in this context, if you go back to chapter 11, that there's really no gender discrimination on that happening. Women are encouraged there to, to pray, to speak in tongues, to prophesy. But what's happening here is not, not that. Paul's addressing something entirely differently that is overriding the service. And if you take the whole picture of what Paul is talking about in this part of his letter, he's addressing how a service should be conducted and some of the issues that they were experiencing there. In 1 Corinthians 14, he starts that by saying, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. There are disruptions. In verse 40, later after he addresses this, he says, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. You see, this is not addressing an assigned preacher. It's addressing all the women in the service. I want you to see this. As in all the congregations of the saints, verse 34, women must remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, 
Here's Paul kind of explaining what was happening here. They should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, the best that we can tell, what is happening here is this, the, the service is being disrupted by women constantly asking questions in church. Now, remember, like there could be all kinds of ways the church met, often, most often in a home, but often men and women didn't sit together. So the women are in a separate room, the men are here, and women have a question. And so they're like, I have a question. Because of patriarchy, women aren't as educated about the Bible. Because of patriarchy, they're, they're hungry and anxious to learn. And yet, their, their uh, willingness and enthusiasm to learning is causing them, well, what about this? Well, what does that mean? And Paul is just saying, hey, be patient. Be patient, and when you get home, ask that question because it's disrupting the flow of this service. By the way, women aren't the only one asked to be silent in, that, in the church service. In chapter 14, Paul says that if you have a tongue and there's no interpreter, you should be silent. With your gift, you should not, give, you should not utilize that gift in that context because it's disruptive. This is about order in this situation, in this place. Culture's also uh, part of how we read this. Some things in the Bible don't apply culturally. We saw that in our first message. There are some things that just don't make the jump. There's not a question about what the Scripture says, but there are reasons why we don't apply that today or we don't apply it in the same way we modify it because we're reading someone else's mail in this case and so we've got to figure out like what specifically was Paul addressing there that we don't have a problem with today I encourage you on our resource list they're going to put this up in the chat to listen to the Bible project and there are episodes uh, beginning at 201 through 209 that talks about how to read the letters of the New Testament. It would be really helpful for you. You see, if you have a church, in particular a church service, that is, that is filled with women that aren't as educated about the Bible because of patriarchy or, be, or about God's word in general, Torah, who possibly might even be recent converts from... Uh, goddess worship or ex-temple prostitutes and that is certainly the case in 1 Timothy 2 which we're going to look at then 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 are really good advice for how the churches should be conducted during their services but if you look at the entire Bible's view of women you see many women leading and teaching we're going to touch on that as we get to the end Let's talk about one more thing on this passage. Let's talk about history. Because Paul could not have meant for this to be applied to big church, which is something that I've heard, and we've talked about this on the elder board, as there was none at the time. See, I've heard, and I probably said it even in my history, I don't know, but like, well, yeah, they can do it in other venues. Like a woman could teach over there in a classroom, but she couldn't teach in this big room because that's a big church. Well, history undermines that because we know from history there was no big church at this time. To apply that context or that kind of picture onto this passage uh, doesn't work because that's an American thing today in, to, in 2020. You know, we have big church, we have little church. There was just church. There were just Christians getting together in a home, uh, in a rented space, in a field, under a tree, on a mountaintop. And they were just gathering. So there is no big church. And so if a woman were to pray or prophesy, she would be doing it in church. Okay, you still with me? Tell me you're still with me in the chat. You're still there? Maybe you went to get a, a cup of coffee. Let's look at example two. You ready? 
Okay, this is in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 8. Another problematic passage for uh, those of us who have kind of moved on and are saying that women should be free to express their gifts and take on roles that were held from them in the past. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a, a, permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. And again, the response I'm sure out there is, what? Or, yeah. Many of the same things that we talked about from 1 Corinthians 14 apply here as well, but let me address just a couple to key on. But first, when we read this, and it says that a woman cannot teach or have authority over a man, where's the boundary of that? This is one of the things we wrestled with. Like, it, was, it made me uncomfortable thinking, does that just mean my wife must uh, accept my authority? Does it mean that every man has authority over every woman in the church? I mean, that seems to be what Paul is saying here. And then how does that apply to Sunridge? Does that mean that if we have a children's minister or director, whatever we're calling them, who has men in Sunday school service or children's ministry, does that, is that wrong? Because that is someone, that is a woman directing a man. These are the things that we had to address. Again, genre is a big part of understanding this, the context that Paul is writing into. Because the context here in his letter to to Timothy, who pastors in Ephesus, is this, that reveals that Paul is directing Timothy to deal with the influence from the cult of Artemis, or Diana, to the Romans. See, Paul is a young pastor in Ephesus, a disciple of Paul. And in Ephesus, it's a city with many problems uh, in regard to Christian faith. There were fertility cults, there were temple prostitutes, and there was the cult of Artemis, or of Diana. And the cult of Diana was, uh, its, its headquarters, so to speak, was in Ephesus. And her temple, the temple of Diana, was one of the seven wonders of the world at this time. And it took 220 years to construct this temple where they would worship. And this mythological Diana was fiercely independent and spirited and vowed not to be associated and certainly sub subjugated to any man. And so any man that attempted to violate her virginity or subjugate her by bearing, uh, her bearing a child was killed. That's the mythological Diana. And so that cult of Diana consisted of mainly women, particularly young girls, who joined the cult at puberty. And if they married, they had to leave the cult and men who served in this temple, they were allowed to serve, they had to be castrated, and they were subjugated to women. And most scholars feel like this was a, a reaction to the patriarchy at the time, but in that cult, women were felt to be superior to men and to dominate over them. And so you see this come out even in the language which plays a part here. The words used for teaching authority are not the typical words that we would use that Paul uses in, in the other place. It indicates a forceful domination over men. The word teach here isn't the usual word to, to mean discipleship or learning in a way that enables someone to think critically. The word is like often used in extra-biblical uh, material as, as an actor who is simply repeating their lines according to script without thought. It really means to indoctrinate. And then the word authority here uh, that Paul uses, this is the only place he uses that word in the Bible. And it's not just like an organizational structure authority. This means to domineer 
and to hold down, to subjugate others. So Paul's forbidding here in Ephesus when he speaks to Timothy, who is this young pastor in the church, his forbidding of women, women teaching with a superior and dominating spirit, he's, he's doing this because if, if this goes on in the church, the community, the culture at that time would get the idea that Christianity endorsed the superiority and the domination of women over men. Except, you know, but rather, there's an equality that the gospel brings us between men and women in our relationships. And that is reinforced in what Paul says as part of this passage, which you may have seen it. He forbids the wearing of jewelry, expensive clothes, or braided hair, and those are all practices of that Dianic cult at that time. And it was one way for them to flaunt their dominance and their superiority over women. And this is again further uh, reinforced by Paul's logic. In verse 13, Paul says, for Adam was first formed, was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And like, I'm not gonna be a person that says I know completely what that means because every scholar I've ever read says I don't really know exactly what it means. But I believe that this text does indicate it does not indicate, first of all, that women are more susceptible to sin. Uh, because here Paul says that, you know, he kind of, it seems like he's saying, well, Eve was to see first, so she's somehow inferior. But in Romans 5.12, Paul says, as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sin, he lays the, he lays the uh, responsibility on the man. So here are two variances of how Paul addresses this. What it seems to be, and I hold this humbly, but I'm in good company with scholars that hold this, um, that Paul is, is refuting the idea that a woman has superior, superiority over a man. Instead, he's, he's revealing our equality with one another. Because when you consider the Dianic cult it makes much more sense for Paul to bring up the order of creation to, so, to show Eve's part in the fall and that childbearing would be a good thing, not something to be rejected over. See, in this case, culture is driving what Paul is saying. We often say, well, culture shouldn't affect us, but it absolutely is affecting how Paul's addressing that situation right there. So, the culture there is causing Paul to silence women so that the gospel is not hindered in that particular place. We see cultural influence today and in every uh, era in the church and certainly in, in my life, in your life as well, in understanding this text the way we emphasize one command over the other. We all do this. Why do we put such an emphasis in this same text supported by the same ideas on this one part about keeping women silent when there are other things that are very explicit in the passage as well. For instance, women's hairstyles and jewelry and clothing. Does, does Paul's teaching here say that if you shop at Target, you're in sin, but if you shop at Walmart, you're holy? We shop at Target a lot, I'm not bragging. Why, why aren't we demanding that men in church lift up holy hands in prayer? When is the last time somebody came over to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said you're not following scripture? Would we break fellowship over that? Would we break fellowship over a church that isn't raising their hands, men aren't raising their hands when they pray? And again, when's the last time you kissed people at church? An explicit teaching by the Apostle Paul. Again, there's so many factors that go into us understanding what Paul is getting at or any text 
You see, in the end, we all pick and choose. Are you willing to say that? Can you say, I pick and choose? Put that in the chat, because I do. If If only I knew which verses I was picking and choosing, I would stop. But we're all doing it. And so when we apply the principles of hermeneutics, it tends to push us toward becoming more honest about what is actually in the passage. So we've dug in kind of like at the micro level. I know I've dumped a lot of information on you, and I just encourage you to like mull that over, but let's just zoom back out, okay? Let's take a big picture, the whole picture of Scripture. Throughout the Bible, women are leading and speaking. Miriam is called a prophetess. And Micah 6.4 says that along with Moses and Aaron, she led the children of Israel out of Egypt. We have Deborah in the Old Testament in the Judges period. And she was the leader over all of the Israelites. The general, Barak, did exactly what she said. And he didn't even want to go to battle without her. If God was using women to lead and to speak that early, how can we have a rule against God doing that? It doesn't make sense to me. Philip has four daughters. Acts 21.8 tells us that all prophesy. Leaving the next day, in Acts 21.8, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. At Pentecost, Peter says that your daughters will prophesy, Acts 2.17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. You know, the early Christians thought that they were living in those last days. There's Priscilla in Acts 18.26. Speaking of Apollos, who was a gifted speaker, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, a married couple, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla is is named as someone who is helping Apollos, who's a gifted speaker, get his theology right. And Priscilla is named first, which is significant in the structure of the sentence. And in Romans 16.3, Paul greets Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers, my co-laborers in Christ Jesus. When you read Romans 16, you have Phoebe pop up, a servant of the church in Sancrea. Romans 16:1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. She's an emissary of Paul. And it's likely that she brought the book of Romans to Rome. And it's also likely that when the person that brings Paul's letter reads it and explains it because they've been a part of that process with him. That's a cultural and historical fact. There's Junia in in Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. These two people, this couple likely, were Christians before Paul, and Junia is a woman's name. And Paul says that she is outstanding among the apostles. She is an outstanding apostle. There's Nympha, who had a church that met in her house in Colossians 4.15. And she is a key leader because she's named, if not even the pastor of that church at that time. There's Chloe, who is mentioned as a head of household, but none of the men are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.11. And then consider this. All the passages in Scripture where women's words are recorded as holy Scripture. Their words our holy scripture. Do you want to put hmm in the chat right now? It's these things weigh on you. You see that Paul shows a great regard for a woman's, a woman's capacity to fully exercise their gifts, which includes to serve, but also to lead and to teach. Consider these thoughts. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I thank you guys for, if you stuck with me this whole time,
You know, um, I've crammed a lot in here, and, but as we wrap up, I just want to say that, you know, these Pauline passages, they're debated among scholars. I, we recognize that. And, you know, the, the goal of this series is not to impose any particular belief on you. In fact, that's not a, even a Sunridge thing. It's, it's been to inform you and to share what we've learned with you. But no one should feel like, well, if I don't believe this, they're telling me I have to leave the church. We're not saying that. We're, we're also not saying just because you don't believe it, you must feel compelled to leave Sunridge. There are so many things that we're in dialogue about and so many things that we're conceding to one another. The board needed to make a decision about this to to bring clarity to the ministry here at Sunders. And so we've done the best that we can. But there are good people on both sides of this issue. You know, Paul said that, uh, that every person has been gifted by grace, been given gifts by Christ, as he apportioned them, and it's like, we recognize it in Sunridge. We have really gifted people. God has gifted them. Some are men and some are women. And why would we want to limit that in any way? Wouldn't we want it to be fully expressed so that we can flourish and thrive together in this beautiful, mysterious thing called the church? It's countercultural. It's a safe place. It's a different place. And it, and it runs by different principles and values that are based in the grace of God. Wouldn't we want that? We have nothing to fear in embracing that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing about fear. Join me, if you will. God, thank you um, for your grace to each one of us in the way that you've gifted us, men and women, and the way you've placed us together in our marriages, in ministry, in churches, in our community, in the places that we work. And we see your design and the way you've brought us together to work together and to serve one another. Would you take the things that we're learning as a church, the things that I'm sharing, and give us your spirit in, in a special way so that we can change the things that need to change and not change those things that we must stand on. Would your spirit, would you allow your spirit to lead us, all of us, and to give grace to one another when we disagree, what, whatever that topic may be? Would you allow us as individuals and as a church to be people who are working in partnership for your kingdom's sake in every way you've meant it to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys.